All right, this morning we're in Mark, Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thanks for uh, yet another new opportunity to start a, a new book of your, of your word, a new gospel. I pray that uh, as we go through it, um, our hearts would be renewed and our minds would be excited to, to start another uh, segment of our time in the New Testament that we would take from it uh, wisdom, that we would uh, heed, heed its word, that we would take the example of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, as a reason for us to be moved towards faith and repentance. Amen. For those who are new, if you hear like the roof sounds like it's going to fall in, it's only pigeons up on the roof sunning themselves, and uh, it's quite noisy. So we start Mark today, looking forward to our time here in the gospel. <clears throat> My wife is home with a, a sick child today, so I can tell a story that involves her. Um, when I proposed, we've been married a little over 11 years, when I proposed to Anna, I, <clears throat> I had a bit of a plan worked out. The ring I want that she wanted, I couldn't find locally, so it was one, not, nothing that fancy, but just unique enough, I needed to order it. And I was gonna go up to, we were gonna take a trip up to uh, the farm where she grew up in Michigan. We were gonna do it in October, in the fall, because, you know, women, for whatever reason, you guys love the fall so much. Um, and so we're doing it in the fall and it was going to be perfect. <clears throat> and then the ring showed up. I don't remember exactly when, but I know it was a Wednesday and it showed up. I got the call, went down, picked it up. It was like early afternoon. And I, all of a sudden it was like, I just need to give this ring to her and ask her to marry me. Like every plan went out the window. So I called her dad on his cell phone. He didn't answer called on their home phone. I think the only two times I've ever called her dad. Um, he didn't answer, and so I was like, I'll just have to talk to him later, I guess. I'm doing this. Um, we had small group that night, so I called our small group and was like, hey, I'm gonna be late. We're driving up, we stopped. It's kind of like rainy, drizzly rain, just light rain, stopped at this park we'd never been to. Got out, Anna's so confused, like, what are we doing? I was like, let's just walk for a little bit in the rain. Um, thankfully, there was like a pretty little bridge on it, knelt down, proposed to her. <clears throat> but once I saw that ring, it was in my mind, like, th there's no plan here. I'm not going to ease into this. There's no suspense. I got to get this taken care of. When you come to Mark, it's a little bit of the same thing. M Mark doesn't just ease into things. He's not making it suspenseful. He's not kind of slowly going to get you to the point. He has really a single point he's going to drive home again and again and again. And in the first 12 words in our English translation, he's made his point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is going to drive home the good news of the Messiah. He is the Son of God. The whole book is going to set up around that. We'll see it here at the beginning. When you get to chapter 8, Jesus asks Peter, 
Who do you say that I am? And he confesses, you're the son of God. And it's kind of the focal point that changes the direction of the gospel from there. Again, in chapter 14, the high priest will turn and ask Jesus himself, are you the son of God? And he'll answer, I am. And then culminating at the end of chapter 15, a centurion, a Roman soldier of all people, as Jesus breathes his very last breath there on the cross, he lets that breath out and the centurion confesses, surely this was the son of God. And as we'll see with Mark, he, he gets it in his mind, he wastes no time. The first ten words, he lays it out for you. And there's really three questions that Mark is going to ask and Mark is going to answer And as he asks them, as we spend a season of time in this gospel, we need to ask these questions to ourselves. They are this, who is Jesus? He's the son of God, there's your answer. Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? And really, with those 12 words and in those three questions, there is a dividing line that goes through humanity. Those who are going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believe his mission of redemption that he has accomplished, and then his claim on your life as a follower of him. Because the way Mark writes, he doesn't leave room to be neutral. Time and time again, we'll be confronted with that truth and we'll rejoice in that truth and we will need to look at ourselves and say, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Do I believe he's the son of God? Am I following him? Mark will hit us with that again and again. Just a little bit about some introductory comments to Mark and then believe it or not we'll, we'll get all the way through verse 13 today so mark you know him in scripture often as john mark you'll see him pop up through acts he comes up mentioned in a couple of the epistles as well if you know your your some of your bible stories you remember that mark traveled with paul and barnabas made some decisions that paul did not like and paul basically fired him i'm not traveling with you anymore they have a major falling out Barnabas seems to uh, be a little more understanding. And so Paul ends up going one direction with Silas and Mark travels with Barnabas as they continue in missionary journeys. Eventually things come around to where Paul will mention towards the end of his life that Mark is a partner in the gospel, that he finds Mark very useful to him and to the ministry. If you read... Irenaeus and uh, Eusebius from the early church historians you've heard them if you've been in Sunday school they talk about Mark and they talk about his close association to Peter that Mark and Peter were very close especially later in Peter's life in fact Mark it would seem as consistently told served somewhat as an assistant or a secretary to Peter And so when you read Mark, it's heavily influenced by Peter, by Peter's thoughts, by the testimony that Peter would have passed along to Mark as he wrote. And you see some of that coming through. So that becomes Mark, who we see, his place in Scripture, the influences on him. Mark is the first gospel that is written. It's the first of 
the Gospels. Well, we have Matthew that comes before it in our, the order of the canon. Mark is the first written. And it's not a biography. It's not a history. Mark's very clear from the beginning. It's the good news of the Son of God. The good news of the Messiah. It's a, an evangelistic word that he is giving to believe in Jesus Christ. He writes it in the mid-60s, around 65 probably. That's significant for a couple reasons, right around when Peter was martyred. But if you remember, if he's writing in 65, 66, Nero has taken charge, and by 59, 60, Nero is, uh, there is no restraint in what Nero is, is seeking to do in his power, seeking uh, to do for enjoyment, whatever. You come to 64, you guys remember the event of 64 is the fire in Rome. Takes out a, a big section of the city of Rome and Nero to escape the judgment of people and to kind of push blame decides, well, there's this weird group of people, the Christians, I will blame them. And persecution, as we see in the early church, not constant everywhere, but when it picks up, it picks up in a heinous way. And it does in Rome in that time. So 65, Mark is writing to primarily the Gentile Christians in and around Rome. So he's writing the earliest of the church trying to find itself in the midst of some of the severest, most heinous persecution that they are going to face. His own mentor just passed off the scene and Peter and now Mark writes to the church, <clears throat> tells them here, it's what you need to hear. Jesus is the Son of God. Mark's style is somewhat unique. You'll notice it's really quick pace. He goes from one thing to another. I mean, we're going to cover 13 verses and we'll already have been through the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. I mean, he is, it's like a highlight reel, really. He's just flying through it. So if you're someone who likes to really settle down, take in the scenery, soak up every word, you'll have to adjust. Mark is going. If you're already ADD, then this is just for you. You know, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Maybe a little of Peter's personality coming out there as well. The word that is used again and again is immediately or straightway. Down. It's used, this word is used 54 times in the New Testament and 42 of those times are in Mark. It's kind of just his, like if you can picture a kid like, I, I can run fast, I, I like spaghetti, I like airplanes, look at this drawing. Mark sort of, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then <clears throat> hardly time to catch your breath. He doesn't stop and editorialize on much at all, but he lets the words speak for themselves and allows you to fill in the blanks. He takes these scenes and just piles them on top of them, one another, and answers the questions. Who is Jesus? What does he come for? What does it mean to follow Jesus? <clears throat> I talked to my dad shortly, a couple weeks ago, just told him, hey, I'm preaching from Mark. And my dad has been preaching for 45 plus years. And, um, you know, doesn't offer tons of advice, but occasionally will. And he, he just encouraged me, well, preach Mark not the synoptics. 
And I will say there is a temptation as you're going through it. Mark's so brief, you're like, man, I could fill in so much with Matthew and with, with Luke and even John a little bit and fill in these stories and become, which, and there's an appropriate place for that. But we need to remember the Gospels were written a certain way for a certain reason. Mark moves at the way he does. And so we're going to do our best. I will do my best. We may reference something here or there, but we want to stick with Mark. What he develops, we want to develop. Where he just lets it land and moves on quickly, we want to let the, the bomb that was dropped land and have its effect without going. Where he doesn't editorialize too much, I'll try not to do that too much myself. But again, bit us back to those questions because indeed, Jesus is the Son of God. That is not something that can leave us neutral. So he begins in verse 1. We've looked at that. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is his theme. There is his purpose. And then Mark immediately goes to the Old Testament. He goes back to the prophetic scriptures. And even though his audience is mostly Gentile at this, this sense, the New Testament church, it's vital that they do this in this early church. It's vital we do it today as well. But that <clears throat> there is so much that is going to be new as he says here, is the beginning of the gospel, the, the, the new creation. Jesus Christ has come to do a new creation, a new work. And yet this newness is grounded in something ancient and true. It, it looks all the way back, in some senses, all the way back to the garden. Of course, it's grounded there in the beginning. But he'll go back to Malachi, he'll go back to Isaiah, and he kind of combines those two uh, prophetic words into one here in verses 2 and 3. And so he goes backwards, immediately grounds this new gospel, the beginning of the gospel, but it is really a fulfillment, it's a continuation, it's the answer to the promises of the Old Testament. And he'll go to John the Baptist, and so we heard that read for us. If you pick up in verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so we have this picture of John that, that conjures up images of Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist, really the last Old Testament prophet here, and he is coming and he is proclaiming. He's proclaiming a message of repentance. These people are sinners, and, and he is baptizing them in this proclamation way of, of symbolically washing away those sins in the baptism. It, it's really a... I think a, a pointed reference that you notice, okay, the forerunner of the Messiah, the Messiah himself, where are they going to come from? You'd think, well, probably from Jerusalem, right? As a Pharisee, as a, a religious leader, some sort of important elite person in Jerusalem. That's where the, the temple worship is. That's where the sacrifices is. That's where the ritual is, are taking place. And yet you see it's John the Baptist who's out in the wilderness and the people that are flocking to him are leaving Jerusalem and coming to him. I do think it's an indictment on just the externalism and the hypocrisy and the emptiness of what is being taught there. The ritual walking through with no substance 
that the Pharisees and Sadducees are leading the people through there in the temple. So instead, they flock out, they leave Jerusalem, come to the wilderness, and there find John preaching and teaching. <clears throat> John the Baptist makes clear a few things. One, he's preparing the way for someone much greater than himself. Look at verse 7. After he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Filthy, dirty sandals. People walking around in them all the time, and he's not even worthy <laughs> to bend down to, to untie that. He, he, while he is gaining a following, while he, this Old Testament prophet figure who emerges after these 400 years of silence and people flock to him, he says, I'm, I'm nothing. It's the one coming after me who is greater than I. He recognizes that what he's doing here is merely symbolic. It's a symbolic of saying, yes, you are, you are sinful people, you are guilty people, and you need to repent and be washed of that. But this water is just a, a symbol. The one who is coming after me, he is bringing what is effectual. He is bringing what is eternal and powerful. And then John himself really makes a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, continuing Mark's theme when he says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it's clear that the bestowal of the Spirit belongs to God and God alone. He is the only one who can bestow the Spirit upon someone. And so John saying, the one coming after me will bestow the Spirit upon you. Testifying indeed, he is the Son of God of God. One word that you'll see, you've already read a few times, we'll read a couple more times, is the word wilderness. <clears throat> We're getting ready to see the preparation of, of Jesus for his earthly ministry, what he has been called to do. And it takes place in the wilderness. The wilderness in scripture is a place of preparation. It is a place of testing. It is a, what you go through in order to be delivered. It, that constantly is coming up through scripture. So it's in this area of preparation. It's in this time of testing. It's on the way to deliverance. It's in the wilderness that this is taking place. And then we come to verses 9 through 13, and we have two scenes that really set the stage for us now for the rest of the ministry of Jesus to begin and launch, beginning in verse 14. But in verses 9 through 11, you have the baptism of Jesus. And then in 12 and 13, you have the temptation of Jesus. Again, John, Mark does not develop them that much. He, he kind of leaves them in this sort of starkness for us to contemplate and for us to see the contradiction of what Jesus is, is condescending to when he is at the same time the Son of God, the Messiah. So there's three things I think we can pull out of here taking place. One is the inauguration of Jesus, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry as a Messiah. He came into the world to save sinners, and he immediately engages in that, not with a lot of pomp and circumstance, but coming in lowliness and humility to save them. So we see this picture of the Savior here doing just this. You think people coming down to the waters, 
from their sin, their guilt, symbolically washing that off into the water, into the water, into the water, person after person after person. And now here comes Jesus. And, and Mark doesn't tell us like the others that the, the argument of John the Baptist saying, why am I doing this? This makes no sense. You don't need to repent. We know that because he's the son of God. And yet here he comes to take this baptism and as it were to stand in the midst of where these sinners were standing. And as these sinners are having their, their sins, their guilt washed off into the water, symbolically of course, washed off into the water, now Jesus stands in the midst of that unpurified water, the sinless, perfect Son of God. No need of repentance, no need of this baptism himself, but he walks into this water. He stands where they needed to be standing. And he receives what they need to receive, and he gives them forgiveness, and he gives them hope, and he gives them life, we will see, fellowship with God. And so immediately we get this picture as, yes, the Son of God, but he's inaugurated in this ministry by standing in the place, standing where the sinner needed to stand. The perfect Son of God being poured upon this sinful, dirty water that belonged to everyone else who was being baptized. He's inaugurated into his ministry. We see, secondly, in this little section, his identification. He, he is identified in really a couple different ways. One is that he stands as a representative of the people of God. He stands where they stood. He stands as a representative of, of Israel in many ways. And so what he does is going to be accounted to the people. What he receives is what the people should have received. And so he identifies with the people through the baptism. But it's really in the baptism that he identifies, he is identified as the Son of God. <laughs> you see that when he came up out of the water, verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That ministering Spirit being set upon him, as John 6 would say, to seal him, that God would seal him for his ministry to empower him, to comfort him. The Spirit is given upon him. Here is the Son of God, that's who he is. And what does he come to do? We see it in baptism, to stand where the sinner is supposed to be standing. To offer grace and forgiveness. And then the voice from heaven comes out and says, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased Father here pronouncing himself that Jesus is the Son of God. Eventually, in the series on Abraham, you'll get to it in Genesis 22, but at Abraham, as he goes to offer his only son as a sacrifice, we see echoes of that here. As he would look, he's like, this is my well-loved son. And God here would declare it after the, the baptism of Jesus, behold, my beloved son. The other echo comes from Isaiah, the suffering servant, in whom the Father is well pleased. We see that here. He is well pleased. It's interesting when it says that <clears throat> the heavens are torn open, the Spirit descending. There's one time 
at the end of the chapter where we'll see that word pop up again. Mark only uses it twice, the idea of being torn open. We see it here, the waters of baptism. <clears throat> and we'll see it later in the baptism of blood on the cross, where again, after that final breath, the centurion confesses this is the Son of God, and the veil is torn in two. God stood where we should stand in order to give us access to where only he belongs. And God identif Jesus identifies here as a son of God through the spirit descending upon him, setting him forth for his ministry. God declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Bearing witness, both his identity and mission. And finally, his temptation. So his inauguration, his identification. And then we see this temptation I don't know, it seems a bit unexpected to me that this scene happens, the spirit descends upon him as you are my beloved son in whom I well pleased. Verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It, it can seem like a little bit of, that doesn't make sense. And I think it's communicating to us that this wasn't this, that Jesus happened to be in the wilderness and it happened to be a hard time and Satan Found, no, this is part of the redemptive script, part of the redemptive plan is that, that Christ would be in the wilderness, in this time of testing, in this preparation, that he would face the temptation from Satan. So, again, Mark doesn't develop it very much. He just makes a couple comments, but I think there's things we can take from it. Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days. Again, Drawing your mind back to Israel, the wilderness for 40 years, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. <clears throat> you see, part of Jesus' redemptive ministry <clears throat> isn't just his passive obedience. It's not just him dying on the cross. It's also his active obedience. That where Israel failed in their time in the wilderness, Jesus did not fail. Where Adam failed in his temptation in the garden, Jesus does not fail in his hour of temptation. And Mark highlights that by not including how Jesus defeated temptation and the scripture he uses, some of those things we see other It's just that he faced it and he overcame it. He makes this little comment he has in there <clears throat> that he was with the wild animals. I, I think what it's doing is drawing your mind back that, you know, the world that Jesus was born into was not the world that Adam was created into. It was the world that Adam left. <laughs> when Adam faced his temptation, he was in Eden. He, he was in a garden he was surrounded by beauty he had food that was good for him that, that was good to eat everywhere and when it came to the animals he had complete dominion over them things were as they were created to be everything was rightly ordered exactly as how God created it to be Adam in the midst of beauty Adam sustained by God's good creation Adam with dominion over the animal and all of it taking place as it should be now when Christ comes to reverse the curse it should make sense he doesn't walk into that same garden he walks into what Adam has left for us where we find ourselves in a fallen world upside down 
So he enters into the wilderness, into the testing. And as he enters into the wilderness, it's not just good food everywhere. There's no sustenance for him. And we see things aren't rightly ordered. There's, there's wild beasts around them. There's danger. It's not how God created it to be with the men and dominion over the animals. And he's drawing to mind this comparison where Adam failed in his hour of temptation. Where Adam failed in his obedience to God. Jesus in his humanity coming. Standing in the place of the sinner. We see that in the baptism. Standing now in the wilderness in the place of the sinner. Facing the temptation. He does not fail. And that is for your redemption. His obedience is accounted to you by faith. And we see it with Israel as well. Israel and their exodus and their deliverance in the wilderness. And they fail. They are not faithful to God. And here again, Christ stands as a representative of true Israel of God, as it were. And he is faithful and he is obedient. Jesus walked into a broken, fallen, disintegrated world. It's the same world we find ourselves in. Only we look back at the cross and we see victory's already been won. We still await its final consummation, but we still find ourselves in the wilderness often. Times of testing, times of waiting, waiting for that deliverance. I think the point here isn't so much the strategies that Jesus used to overcome sin. Here the point is that Jesus overcame sin and that's accounted to you. You're not going to walk through your wilderness journey and get it just right every time. You are not always going to stand up to Satan and overcome at every turn. There's going to be temptations and we fall. Our hope is, our rest is not that we did a little better, we're going to earn God's forgiveness at some point. Our hope and our rest is Christ faced every temptation that we faced and he came through it sinless, perfectly obeying the Father. That's our hope. And we look at Jesus, what does it mean to follow him? Well, we strive to be like him. To be faithful in the wilderness journey. So we see it here at the beginning of Mark. He looks back to the Old Testament. Because this is rooted deeply in the Old Testament. And here we have Jesus. Just so you don't miss it, I'm going to tell you the point of the whole story in the very first words I say. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. All of us are going to have to answer these questions and wrestle with what it means for our everyday lives, what it means for the destiny of of our immortal souls. That Jesus is the Son of God, that he has come to stand in the place of sinners, and what it means to follow him. Let's take a moment, we'll pray, and then we'll sing a verse of Rock of Ages as we transition to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does not return void. 
that is powerful. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we can take for granted just how radical that claim was in that moment that he is the Son of God. Lord, even now we can become a bit dull to that and what it means that Jesus Christ took on humanity, was tempted as we are, but persisted in obedience for our redemption, stood in the place where we are to stand, Lord, to have guilt washed away. Instead, he stood and had that guilt poured upon him. Lord, might we find real courage. I pray for those who are struggling with sin and temptation, with with just a time of of discouragement, whether just from circumstances or or choices, whatever it might be, Lord. They find themselves in the wilderness. Lord, might they look away from themselves to Christ. Lord, Satan would love for us to think that we are not worthy to approach the Lord and therefore somehow it honors the Lord that we just stay away Lord we know we're not worthy and that's why we run to him because we need him we need to rest in him is the same is true for the table it's not that we come because we've finally lived in such a way that you know it would please the Lord for us to come no we come and we run to it because that's what we need That's what we need to be nourished upon. That's what we need to rest in. That's our hope. Might the same be true, Lord, just in in our, our lives as we battle that sin, that we would not doubt that you can forgive us, that we would not doubt that you are righteous, Lord, but we would look to Jesus Christ and his accomplishments for us and there find our hope. As you would to stand, we'll sing through one verse of Robert.